Griffith states that because sine naught is a symmetric function, the spin state has to be anti-symmetric, so the ground state of helium should be a singlet. I'm confused on the reasoning here. So the reasoning was uh, we had two electrons. We ignore the repulsion, so we just use hydrogen wave functions. The lowest possible energy state is when each electron is in the lowest hydrogen wave function. That means they're both in the lowest one. Their spatial wave function is symmetric. If they interchange the spatial positions, nothing changes. They're in the same state. But the fermions, so they have to be anti-symmetrized. That means the spin part of the wave function has to be anti-symmetric. The anti-symmetric combination of two spin half guys is spin zero, the singlet. What is the difference between perihelion and orthohelion on the macroscopic level? Don't do both configurations exist and have different properties? So para was the singlet and ortho was the triplet. And so uh, we saw that they have different energy levels because of putting in the anti-symmetrization or symmetrization of the wave functions means things are pushed, the electrons are pushed further apart or closer together. So they have different energy levels. So if you measure the spectra, they have different spectra. OK. So I promised to answer five quantum questions. So the first one we're going to tackle is, uh, why are only fermions subject to the Pauli exclusion principle and not bosons? Is there some deeper physical principle? Or is it just another axiom of quantum mechanics? So we sort of glossed over this last time. I'm going to gloss over it in uh, more depth. <laughs> oh, ah, I don't want that. Okay, so we know about integer spin. If you have something that's spin zero, it's, it's spherically symmetric. So if you rotate it, nothing happens. You have a vector, like spin one. A vector, you have to rotate by 360 degrees and you get back to where you started. But if you have something like a playing card, rotate it by 180 degrees and you get back to where you started. So spin 2 is like that. You only have to rotate by 180 degrees to get back. So if these are the rules for integer spin, then for half integer spin, see as the spin goes up, you rotate less. So if the spin goes down to a half, you'll have to ro rotate twice. <coughs> so if we rotate once, we pick up a minus sign. We rotate twice, then we get back to we get two minus signs, so that's one. So we have to rotate twice around to get back to the same identical wave function. That's what we got out of our angular momentum commutation relations. So we have two types of particles: bosons, integer spin, fermions, half integer spin. I've seen these all before. So to tell you why. You, why you get this Pauli exclusion or the spin statistics theorem, you need to know about relativity and quantum mechanics, which means quantum field theory. So here's quantum field theory. This is a space-time diagram. So here's an electron moving this way. The vertical axis is time. So it moves in time and space. And say it emits a photon. The photon goes off, and the electron bounces back that way to conserve momentum. And we know electrons have spin half, so the spin could be uh, opposed to the direction of motion or going along the direction of motion. We call uh, the case when it's opposed to the direction of motion left-handed, when it's going 
the same direction right now. And we'll see that, or I told you that photons are spin one. We'll sort of prove that later on. Uh, so if this guy is spin one, and this guy was left-handed, so the spin is going that way, to conserve angular momentum, this guy going back that way still has to have spin going this way. So that we have a half unit going this way. Here we have one that way and a half that way, so we still have one that way. <coughs> so the spin is still opposed to the direction of motion, so this is still left-handed. And we can do the same thing with right-handed. So angular momentum still works. It also absorb a photon. And angular momentum still gets conserved. So left-handed goes to left-handed, right-handed goes to right-handed. I'm make, making it very simple by making all the momentum go in one direction, just to make life easy for us. And hopefully you've heard about Compton scattering before. So this is what's actually going on with Compton scattering. Photons are hitting electrons, bouncing off. So here's what actually happens. Photon comes in, gets absorbed by the electron. Sometime later, that electron hits a photon. And it turns out that this can happen in two different ways. So this guy in the middle, it's not, this is some state that we could measure and prepare and send in. This is some state that comes out that we measure. We can't actually measure what's going on with this guy. So this is like a virtual state. So in our language of non-relativistic quantum mechanics, that means we don't have to conserve energy. We that state only lives for a very short time. It'll satisfy the energy uncertainty relation. So when, when you look at it in uh, taking into account relativity, you can see that there are two possible two possibilities. This guy in the middle, the electron in the middle, could be space-like or time-like. So time-like, you're familiar with because you're time-like. That means you travel at less than the speed of light. So this thing space-like is effectively traveling faster than the speed of light, but because it only lives for such a short time, nothing bad happens. But you have to uh, study some quantum field theory to see why that's the case. So what you, what you learn when you study relativity is that uh, if you do a boost on this guy, you can change whether this guy is over here or over here. But if you boost a space-like thing, you can change what, which happens first. This one could happen first, or this one could happen first, depending on how you do the boost. So what some observers would see that process like this. Uh, this one <coughs> photon comes in, it creates uh, two particles. This particle comes over here and uh, annihilates with this particle and emits a photon. And just like charge conservation, we can see that this guy has a negative charge, so this guy must have a positive charge because this guy was neutral. And then the positive charge cancels this negative charge to something neutral again. And if we look at the spins, make the spins add up, this guy must have spin going that way. And so you can think of this guy, or you can prove to yourself that this guy in the middle is a positron, if you know what a positron is. When they first figured this out, of course, no one had heard of a positron before. So this is a positron, 
and we draw out these diagrams of the arrow going backwards to tell us it's an antiparticle. This is antimatter. So if you have quantum mechanics and relativity, you find that you get antimatter. It's a consequence. So you can create pairs of, of electrons and positrons like this to conserve. These processes conserve energy and momentum for the initial and final state. So you can make a left-handed electron and a right-handed positron in different ways. So the guy from the left could interact here or could interact over here. And you have to set these correspond to different probability amplitudes that you'd have to add together. So that's, Dirac was the one who figured this out. He didn't do it with these diagrams. He came up with a relativistic generalization of the Schrodinger equation, which in the non-relativistic limit reduces to the Schrodinger equation, but properly accounts for relativity and spin. And that's called the Dirac equation. So what he showed is relativity plus quantum mechanics gives any matter. Here's a PET scan, which uses positrons practical application. So, now that you understand quantum field theory, we can look at this process. Here's an electron coming along and a photon goes by and they don't interact. In this case, the electron comes along, the photon makes a plus and minus pair, and then the positron annihilates with the electron and the photon comes out. Yeah? Um, I'm sort of confused. How can they move this way and that way? Which way? This, this guy is moving to the right. Oh, okay. The arrow is just telling us about the charge is the opposite of this charge. Oh, okay. Right. Well, there's another reason for the arrow, but the, when you take quantum field theory, you'll see why we draw the arrow that way. This has the same initial and final states, so we should add these amplitudes together when we calculate the amplitudes. But here, this electron is not the same as this electron. So because of anti-symmetrization, what we've done is we've interchanged some electrons, so we should get a minus sign. You guys believe that? Compared to uh, having finding this electron in our final state, Here's a different electron that we find in our final state. So we've interchanged electrons. So there is a minus sign if you go through the quantum field theory calculation. So now there's a five pages of mathematics. Yes. So these are not like uh, the same situation that used to be. No, these are the, the same initial and final state, but something different happens in between. So this is two different. This is like the two slit experiment. There are two ways can have this process happen, we have to add the probability amplitudes. So now after five pages of mathematics, you can show something cool. That's that uh, inter this interchange is equivalent to a rotation. So I'm just going to give you a uh, analog <coughs> model that shows the five pages of mathematics is reasonable. So here is our process, <laughs> this piece of paper. You can see that it's got a rough edge and a smooth edge, because I just ripped up a sheet of paper. So this guy here, the smooth edge is on the right. This guy here, the smooth edge is on the right. <coughs> and uh, this guy here, the smooth edge is over here. So uh, this is showing us, this corresponds, and I drew a red line on it. It's hard to see. So the red line is here. It's an electron. I fold it over. The red line is on the back, so it's a positron. And I fold it over again, and the red line is on the front. It's an electron again. This is a 
This is my analog model of this calculation. So this, we said that this interchange gets a minus sign. Now, we could imagine different, uh, different ways of doing this. This might happen before that. So you can imagine stretching this out, just pulling it out like that. And what you see is that this paper has been twisted around. So by 360 degrees, it's got a twist. So this interchange is equivalent to a rotation by 360 degrees, is what those five pages of mathematics show you. And that's what, that tells you that interchanging is related to rotations. So because fermions get a minus sign in interchange, they also get a minus sign in rotations, or vice versa. It's easier to derive the minus sign in the rotation. So therefore, interchanges must have the same minus sign. Bosons don't get a minus sign under 360 degree rotations. So they don't get a minus sign when you interchange them. So hopefully that made you want to take quantum field theory. How long does it take to get to that particular question? Is that like the first question? <coughs> like I think the, the, by the second quarter you can do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just three years ago. Okay. Back to undergraduate quantum mechanics. So we're ready to do the uh, free electron gas. And so this is our first approximation to solid state physics. And this approximation, we're going to ignore the interactions. Well, we're not completely ignoring them, but we're not modeling them in detail. So what we'll assume is that we have a box that has a potential that's zero inside and infinity outside. So we'll have LX, LY, LZ. And it's infinite outside. So that means the electrons have to stay in the box. And why does this make any sense as an approximation? Or what kind of approximation are we making? So it takes, ener it takes quite a bit of energy to get an electron outside of the box. So if we're looking at energies less than the amount of energy it would take to release an electron, then this part is sensible that we can approximate that potential outside is infinite. So it's a low energy approximation. And energy is related to momentum, so it should be a low momentum approximation. Now, if we have low momentum, that means long wavelengths. If we have long enough wavelengths, if I have a wavelength this big, I can't resolve a structure that's this big. Right? But that's something that you must have learned last quarter. Or in optics. Somewhere. If you have a wavelength this big, you can't resolve small structures. That's why we need to build the Large Hadron Collider to look at short distances. So if we have long wavelengths, low momenta, then we can't probe what's going on at the distances between these on the atomic spacing level. So say I have a wavelength that's the size of my box, or solid, that we're looking at. I won't be able to probe the structure of the atoms. So the electron in that wave function, We'll just see an average over all the interactions inside the box. 
and inside the solid there's an equal number of protons and electrons. So on average, there's no electrical repulsion for these long wavelength guys. And so this V equals zero makes sense for low momentum states. As we go up to higher and higher momentum, we'll start to be able to probe that there maybe there's more protons in this region than electrons. We get down to atomic spacings, we'll see that there's a nucleus at the center, electrons are spread out around it. But that will be some very high momentum. And then if we get to those momentum, we'll need to take care of those interactions. So this approximation will not work for those high momentum. <coughs> okay, so fortunately, we've solved this problem before. The Hamiltonian is just kinetic term. And we solved that on lecture two. The wave function, uh, we can use separation of variables to find a separate wave function for each direction. So when you do that separation of variables, we found that we just get a one-dimensional problem that we know how to solve. The solutions are sines and cosines. So we labeled the eigenvalues by something, something called k, one for each direction. So the solutions are sines and cosines. And we have our boundary conditions that at x equals zero, the wave function vanishes. So that tells us this b coefficient is zero. And at the other side of the box, that tells us that this sine has to vanish. So kx lx has to be an x pi. So our wave functions are labeled by nx, ny, and z, and we even normalized them in lecture two. So we just get a product of signs labeled by the quantum numbers. And the energy eigenstates just apply our Hamiltonian to those wave functions. The derivative squared will bring out an n squared pi squared over L squared for each part of the wave function. Since it's gradient squared, we'll get the sum of those terms. We have three, three quantum numbers. We can uh, think of it in terms of three momentum vectors, even though the expectation value of the momentum is zero. We can label it by these vectors. So these vectors 
our momentum vectors. labeled by integers and we only need positive integers. So here's our k space, momentum space. So each state, each eigenstate of the energy is labeled by a point, labeled by these three integers but it's easier to think about uh, volumes instead of counting points because we're used to continuum problems. So if you think about the lattice of points, that space is made out of little cubes. So each corner of this cube represents a state, but to make life simpler, we're going to associate the state with the box, not with the point. So each point is surrounded by eight cubes, and each cube has eight corners. So there's the same number of boxes as corners. So if we're just interested, interested in counting, we can just use the cubes instead of the corners. But then we can use our continuum approximations to make life simple. So there's eight corners per box. <coughs> Each corner has eight neighboring boxes. associate one box per state. And so the volume, each of those boxes has a volume. It's pi cubed over Lx, Ly, Lz, because the side of each box is pi over L. same as pi cubed over the total volume of the box. So we're interested in a lot of atoms in our box. So the number of atoms will be like Avogadro's number, 6 times 10 to the 23, a very big number. And we're going to assume that each atom contributes Q free electrons. So Q will be like one or two. And that partly that's sort of semi empirical because we know that uh, from our study of atoms and chemistry there's valence electrons. So usually only the outer electrons are involved in inter interactions. Once we develop the theory, you can compare with experiment and extract how many free electrons there are. <coughs> and another reason why this model makes sense 
is that, at least for metals, you know that you can um, hammer out a metal, draw it out into a wire. So what's happening when you do that? When you're pounding on that metal, you're making the nuclei of the atoms slide past each other, but they're still stuck together in the solid we call a metal. What is it that's sticking them together? It's these free electrons that are moving around. The, those electrons that are just moving around through the entire solid, they're like the glue that hold the, the whole thing together. And so the bigger Q is, the more glue there is, qualitatively speaking. So the bigger Q is, uh, the harder the metal should be, and the higher the melting temperature. So a simple example, sodium is in the hydrogen <coughs> column, so it has one valence electron. Magnesium is in the next column over, so it has two valence electrons. So you can check that uh, magnesium is harder than sodium and it has a higher melting temperature. Okay, so we know that <coughs> There can only be two electrons for each of these states. Because if they're, they're in the same spatial wave function, their spin has to be anti-symmetrized. So they'll just be the spin singlet state. So hand, the semi-classical description is one spin up, one spin down. We know anti-symmetrized. So that means there'll be n, q over 2 states that are filled. So if we look for the lowest energy configuration of our solid, the ground state should be the one where we fill up an octant of the sphere in k space. Approximating it by sphere, it's a Lego sphere where you have 10 to 23 Legos. <coughs> so you can get a very good approximation to a sphere. So we'll call the radius of that sphere K sub F for Fermi. Because he's a smart guy and he did it first. So the volume of the sphere is 4 thirds pi r cubed. Here the radius is kf. And we only need 1 eighth of it because we only need positive integers. And uh, that volume should equal the number of states times the volume of each state. So there's nq over 2 states with the volume pi cubed over b for each one. So that means we can calculate Kf. Bring this junk over to the other side. We'll get, so this is a 2, which will cancel that 2. We'll get 3 nq over pi times pi cubed. So that'll be squared over b. And then we need cube root. 
NQ over B is the density of elect free electrons. is that we have this octant of a sphere in momentum space. We fill it up to some level, and above that, the states are empty. So the surface of the sphere, the boundary between filled and unfilled, is called the Fermi surface. energy of the Fermi surface, we just plug into our formula, K is equal to KF, so we have H bar squared over 2M times KF squared. And we calculated KF, so we get that, rho to the two-thirds. Are there any questions? calculate the total energy of the electron gas then. So take a shell of thickness dk. And the shell volume is 4 pi k squared. That's the area of the sphere times dk. And we want the number of electron states. shell volume divided by the volume per state times two electrons per state. So state cancels, volume cancels. Get number of electrons in a shell. So that's that factor of two electrons per shell. There's a one eighth from up there. Shell volume is four pi k squared dk. And the volume per state is pi cubed over v. So we get vk squared dk over pi squared. And we know that each state with momentum k has an energy h bar squared k squared over 2m.
so the energy of the shell it's that energy of the states times the number of electrons in that shell and so to get the total energy we just integrate that over the sphere so all the constants come out front we have to integrate k squared from k equals zero up to the Fermi momentum K squared, K squared, K to the fourth. There's a K squared in the measure and a K squared in the energy. So we get K Fermi to the fifth over five. You remember that K Fermi was 3n cubed pi over v to the one-third. So the total energy if we plug in what K Fermi is minus five-thirds, so we get minus two-thirds. So that means dE dV is negative. So that gives us a positive pressure. So that's the degeneracy pressure. called the exclusion pressure. So another thing that seems stupid about this calculation is that uh, we neglected the temperature of the electrons. Usually the solids you're interested in are not at uh, absolute zero. Some people are interested in that, but uh, in everyday life not so much. But that's okay as long as the actual temperature is small compared to the temperature of the Fermi surface. If that temperature, if the actual temperature is small compared to the temperature that would correspond to the energy of the Fermi surface, then it's a small correction. So what's the, if you plug in the numbers for the Fermi energy, the corresponding temperature, the Fermi energy for copper, is about seven electron volts. And if you set that equal to Boltzmann's constant times the temperature, that would be the typical energy at some at that temperature. We'll 
call that the Fermi temperature. If you plug in uh, to that, you get that the Fermi temperature is about 8 times 10 to the 4 Kelvin. And the melting point of copper is about 10 to the 3 Kelvin. So if your copper is solid, then it has a temperature of less than 10 to the 3 Kelvin, and that's two orders of magnitude smaller than the typical energy at the top of the Fermi surface. So those energies are small corrections. So it's a reasonable first approximation. So we have like seven minutes, so I'm going to Some, start something. See if we get. Probably won't get through it. No. Oh, forgot this. So I said that uh, this is a good approximation for low momenta. If we actually think about going up to the Fermi surface, that's the highest momentum in our ground state. So those guys could potentially be sensitive to the actual structure of the lattice of, nu of the nuclei of the atoms. So they're arranged in some lattice, and uh, they have potentials associated with them. So if you actually work out the Fermi surfaces uh, by some horrible, horribly complicated computer calculation, what you find is that some of them sort of look like the sphere that we've been talking about. But for others, more complicated shapes emerge. So this is definitely something, again, for graduate school, if you wanted to be able to calculate that. But to, there's still, the idea of the Fermi surface is there. It's just not a spherical shape in general. OK, now we're going to do astrophysics. So white dwarfs are stabilized by degeneracy pressure of the electrons. So we have some white dwarf that has some radius. We know the electron mass, the nucleon mass, and the number of electrons per nucleon, which is Q. And we'll make the approximation that the density inside the white dwarf is constant. This is only a prudent approximation. So we have, given that volume, we calculate the density, the number of number of atoms times the or number of protons times the mass of the proton gives us the total mass of the white dwarf. And then it's just the same calculation we did. We're just plugging in for our formula for the total energy of the free gas of electrons inside the white dwarf. Now there's another contribution to the energy that's due to the gravitational potential. So as you can imagine in the star, gravity is actually important. No, really. In a star, <laughs> gravity is important. It's very big, big mass. So do the same sort of calculation. Calculate uh, at some fixed radius r, there's a mass inside that radius that provides uh, 
potential, and then there's the mass of the shell at that radius. So that's the gravitational potential energy associated with that shell, radius r. And uh, you know the mass inside goes like r cubed times the density. The mass of the shell goes like the area times dr. So we get, uh, and the potential goes like 1 over r. So we get r to the fourth dr. And so again, we integrate that over the radius. Now it's actually in physical space, radius. So we have r to the fourth, so we get r to the fifth again. So that's the total gravitational potential, just like r to the fifth row squared. But if we convert that back into uh, <coughs> the actual mass, plug in this formula for rho, you actually get that it goes like 1 over r. So you can see this. <coughs> An R cubed here, we have rho squared, so that brings us down to 1 over R. So the total energy of the system is the energy of the free electron gas plus the gravitational energy, and they have opposite signs. This, uh, energy of the free electron gas, we're adding up positive values for each electron. This potential is attractive, so we get a negative contribution. And so you can see there's a balancing point. So if we set the derivative equal to zero, uh, the energy minimum will be at some particular radius where this is satisfied. So that radius is just the ratio of those coefficients that we just calculated. So it goes like the number of uh, atoms to the minus one third. Plugging in the numbers, get a numerator that's 10 to the 25 meters. And for a solar mass star, there's 10 to the 57 protons. So you get a radius of uh, 7 million meters, 7,000 kilometers. So that's smaller than the Earth. So it's a big mass, but it's pretty dense. Anyone remember a teaspoon of white dwarf weighs? Hundred tons or a thousand tons or something crazy. So the, the problem with this calculation is if you compare the uh, the rest energy of a, an electron with the, the Fermi energy. So the Fermi energy using the formulas we just used is uh, two times ten to the five electron volts. Rest energy of an electron is 5 times 10 to the 5 electron volts. This is not so much smaller than that. So that means it's starting to become relativistic. And as we increase the number of protons, uh, that means the radius will go down. When the radius goes down, this energy goes up as we're squeezing it. So it becomes more relativistic as we add more protons, look at bigger white dwarfs. So next time, we'll look, look at briefly how to handle the relativistic case and find the chamber saver limit.